Eyes on Whiteness is a podcast that illuminates the insidious and ignorant ways of whiteness, regardless of intent. Our guests are invited to practice the work of transmuting white supremacy and patriarchy, as these constructs are pervasive and ever-present for all of us. I'm Deidre Barber Vasquez, Black and Puerto Rican, lesbian, New York Californian, living in the Southwest, mother to dog child Onyx, cis woman. I am my own, I am my mother's, I am Earth's, I am you. And I'm Maureen Benson, a white, straight, cisgender woman living in Oakland, California, doing my best to be a principled accomplice for racial justice in these apocalyptic times. I also hella love my dogs, Wagyu, and Philly. In season two, we're excited to share with you a series of incredible conversations with extraordinary guests that we invite to engage the question, what does it look like to be an intersectional integrity? We want to thank our brilliant and kind producer, Aaron Rand Freeman. And don't forget, if you'd like to support us, we do appreciate it. You can find us on Patreon, Eyes on Whiteness, and you can rate and leave a review anywhere you're listening to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Dr. Adam Faulkner is a writer, educator, and race and equity strategist. He identifies as a white, queer, cis man. A former high school English teacher in New York City's public schools, Adam's pedagogy and research focus on understanding how performance, storytelling, and technology work to foster empathy in individuals and organizations. Adam is a senior consultant with Jennifer Brown Consulting and holds over a decade of cross-industry experience building racial equity strategies and creative cultural programming for corporate, academic, and nonprofit partners. I am super excited this morning to welcome Adam. Hi, Adam. Hey. Hey, Maureen. <laughs> Hi, Adam. Good to see you. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing good today. That's always the sort of like good barometer. I feel like you have to add the word today. How are you feeling now? How are you feeling here and now? right, is, uh, is actually a thing that I've been much more conscious of in the last year, um, just because how you doing is such a throwaway, inappropriate question to ask people in moments where the stakes are so egregiously high, uh, even when they're not, even when they don't feel like they are. So today I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm in um, Michigan. I'm visiting family uh, who has just undergone some, some surgery. Um, and I'm here being a pair of seeing eyes and um, just feeling in my space with them. So I'm feeling pretty good. Hmm. That's awesome. So glad you could be with family. <laughs> yeah. How are you today, Deidre? I'm good. I'm good. I agree. I think, you know, I, I think that uh, I love, Adam, what you said around the having to add today. I also think like, Honestly, part of me is like, welcome everyone else to the terror that has been the United States for fucking ever. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, it always has been a weird question to me. I'm like, okay, yeah. Usually, you know, 
there's always something going on for folks of color in the United States that makes the question of how are you questionable to answer, mm-hmm. you know, and been trained to not answer with transparency, right? Been trained to just answer fine, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I too am sitting in a lot of privilege and blessings and uh, am excited to be here with both of you today. I'm super, I'm super I'm interested. I want to hear how you're doing, Maureen. And I also want to say like that bio, I'm, I found myself thinking, ooh, Adam's in the belly of the beast. I'm ready for this conversation. <laughs> you found yourself thinking, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and then there was, I was like, ooh, better him than me. Jeez. <laughs> I accept that. I accept it. <laughs> how are you maureen today how are you today yeah, i love it i love it uh sometimes it feels like how are you in this minute right um so thanks everyone for your collective awareness of uh asking a question that maybe is more appropriate uh today i'm tired i was sharing you know before we started recording today i'm uh navigating uh, gratitude because it's now fall, so it's a little bit cooler here. Uh, So I get to say I'm just tired instead of hot and tired, uh, Mm. which is fun creeping up on 50 with, what's that phrase, having my own personal summer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I am grateful in this moment to not be navigating the uh, hot flashes that have been plaguing my life. (laughs) The last few months, I'm in a space of gratitude to learn about what the stage of life is um, for me and uh, comes with a lot of fatigue. But I would imagine that's not all related to hormones because we are in these times. (laughs) All right. Adam, how is, uh, how does belly of the beast land on you? Does that resonate? Does that feel like you're in the belly of the beast? You are doing so many amazing things. You know what? Yeah, let's start there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I would be curious to hear from from Deidre, like what resonated with you about that sort of set of circumstances, which may enable me to speak more openly or directly about, sure. you know what I mean? Like, what, feel, okay. what parts belly, really what simple. parts beast? <laughs> well, it's real. Uh, yeah, totally. And so, well. There, there are two things that stood out, like to be transparent, honest, like, you know, I really yeah. remember the bio at this point, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I'm a person of color. Trauma is my life. I have a short term memory. That's pretty bad. So, uh, but the thing that stood out to me was the, the, the combination of racial equity and corporate clients there's something there about doing racial equity and, and i don't point i'm not pointing the finger like i i said i said belly of the beast because i have experience in that world um yeah. and i will not say i will never go back into it uh because i i don't know but it's definitely not an active choice i am making mm-hmm. at the moment to take on this idea uh, at least the way that i see racial equity the the readiness does not exist at all in any corporate environment I have ever experienced to take on the way that I define racial equity. So that's what I was thinking about uh, belly of the beast, like the very nature of capitalism is one that is designed to uphold racial inequity. So to do racial equity within capitalism, belly of the beast. That's right. Thank you for the, 
the clarification and thank you for the transparency and the directness. Um, and I resonate with it. You know, it, it's, um, it's upstream. It's swimming upstream for sure. And it's a thing that I think for a very long time, um, and to, still to this day, like I am deeply resistant to and skeptical of. And when I am resistant to and skeptical of, um, I have to often ask myself those questions of like, why am I resistant to them? And why am I skeptical of them? And, and can I locate myself in the thing I am resistant to and skeptical of? And in the case of doing equity work in corporate spaces, uh, I can definitely locate myself in a history of wanting to distance myself from whiteness and maleness and a desire for a foothold in capital. Um, all of those things I think are in the very back of my brain rattling around and have been for a long time. And much of the work that I have done as an organizer and uh, an educator has existed in um, education spaces and community organizing spaces and, and eventually in higher education um, and in youth development work. And I think the longer that I have um, continued to spend time in those spaces, the clearer it has become to me that um, a lot of the folks that I um, really need to be speaking to and engaging um, often look like me and are not in the spaces where I spend 90% of my time. And where those folks are, you know what I mean? It's not to say that like <laughs> all white cis-presenting men that look like me work in corporate America. That's not true, obviously. But um, it, it does represent for me a like locus of a population that is rarely in the rooms where I feel like much of my work and time and energy is spent. Um, so I think it's a combination of a, being called to it um, because I just feel like I needed to step more squarely into the corporate spaces that were explicitly undermining and undercutting what I've hinged my life's work toward dismantling, right? Um, and being fully transparent, um, I have found that I really value the balance of being able to speak in both of those rooms, both because the demand um, is through the roof, and we can talk more about that. We'll unpack that, I'm sure, in this space a little. Um, and we're in this interesting moment where both because of the pandemic, right, and because of the spike in alarm and urgency um, following the murder of George Floyd and the spike of the movement for Black Lives, there's this sort of general level of hysteria about how to get smarter faster around being able to speak ab about racial equity issues at work, right? And for some companies, um, that has meant uh, we're finally doing it because we can't say no any longer and we really just have to hit this checkbox and keep it moving, right? Um, finally, the last sort of straw is broken. We have to get someone in here to do this or to at least start the conversation. Um, and, and the other half for me are folks like me who have been trying desperately to get this work off the ground for the better part of a decade. And some of the like older, more distanced folks from these kinds of conversations are finally coming around to it because like the millennials and the Gen Zers that they work with have been holding them to the fire for too long. 
Um, and it's sort of represented this sort of nexus of a moment where people are willing to say yes to a little more dangerous proposals. Um, and because, just very transparently, because there's like less overhead in what it means to engage consultants and strategists in the work we do, um, I think people are faster to say yes, because all you got to do is click this link from your living room. Um, and my job is to try and be as Trojan horsey as I possibly can to get into the room, you know, um, and at once hold folks' hands uh, so that they don't get up and walk away from the table while simultaneously taking advantage of a moment. And the moment is the thing that is putting me in the rooms in the first place. Um, and, I'm, and I'm in some ways like grateful for that. And of course, in some ways, anxious to figure out how to um, both be the person they want to see in that room, while also quickly getting out of the way and centering the voices of other folks, because I'm, um, depending on the day, not the person they're mm. hearing from. <laughs> mm. You know, it's interesting in this, thank you for all of that. That was, uh, I think, a beautiful opening. Um, and it's in the spirit of transmuting white supremacy and patriarchy, you're like, like, um, I'm listening, to, I was listening to you and I was like, I have to, uh, even when I'm in conversation with folks, I have to take notes because, um, just kind of my brain works non-linearly and it, you. you know, it'll, it'll capture different pieces here and there. And so things I want to make sure I come back to. Um, and what I found myself thinking though, is that. I had to, in real time, listen to you while also being very introspective and self-aware of something that was bothering me, right? And I felt it here. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't you, right? And I was like, I could, I could sense, I was like, it's not this person, because I don't, I don't, I'm meeting you not right now, Adam. Like, I don't know Adam, but I'm meeting yeah, yeah, Adam. Yeah. So I know that, you know, I know enough that it's not that, that it's the eye there's, it's not, I don't, my work, I don't point the finger out. Um, and so I'm like simultaneously listening to you and then, and then like, I'm having this feeling, you know, and I'm trying to think, okay, be introspective, be self-aware, where is this coming from? And then you said the thing about like, I'm attempting to then be Trojan horsey as possible and get them there and then step aside to sort of make room for other voices. And that was at that point where I realized, Oh, you know, the, the that it's kind of twofold. Like I, I, it, you know, this is where the, the intersectional integrity comes in in term for me in terms of being able to hold both. I think it's really wonderful. You're doing this work. I think it's really necessary. I think when I call it belly of the beast and like that, I'm not doing the corporate work. That's not to um, belittle it or to say that yeah. it shouldn't be happening. Right. It absolutely should be happen happening. Um, I'm particularly thrilled that it's white folks doing it because um, I've known for two decades, um, white folks hear white folks, yeah. white folks don't hear BIPOC. Yeah. yeah. So particularly if you're talking about race or any yeah. identity uh, issues. And so I think it's wonderful and it has to happen. And I, um, some people might say it's a bummer that it had to happen on the heels of, 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 of murder. And I say that everything that happens in this country is on the heels of murder. That's right. Um, and so it has to happen. 
And so I hold that simultaneously with like, okay, um, having gratitude for the work you're doing. And then also holding the space that to, for me to be transparent and vulnerable in this moment, um, I find it fucking irritating. I find it fucking irritating <laughs> that they will listen to you. Right. I think it's beautiful that they'll listen to you, but it's just really irritating. I'm like, I'm like, Ugh, of course, like it's going to take a white dude to come walking in here to have this conversation. Uh, for it to possibly land. I'm still questioning if it's landing, but, um, you know, small steps, small steps, baby steps, you know, Um, and thank goodness for Gen Zers, younger millennials and Gen Zers. And I just hope that they keep holding people's feet to the fire until they hit like 30, 35, because then it just seems like we just stop fucking caring. So we're around 35. But um, so... You know, so I, 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 that's what, that's what like, so the, you know, for me, intersectional integrity is like being able to hold both of those of like really appreciating your work you're doing. And then simultaneously as a, as a black woman, as a black queer woman doing this work for two decades, it irritates the hell out of me, but mm-hmm. you know, whatever we need to move forward, I get, well, not whatever. I am okay with this particular thing happening <laughs> for us to move forward. Put that way. <laughs> Deidre, I, I really appreciate, um, I appreciate your naming that and 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 leaning into the vulnerability that is important for me and it also pulls sort of out of thin air something i'm always feeling when i talk about this work um i don't you know there's a lot of there's a lot of imposter syndrome bullshit that goes on to like whether or not i am the person to be talking to folks in these spaces right um And I think I spend most of my life right there on the delicate blade between like, you absolutely have to be the voice and the body and the experience getting shoved into these rooms. And you are the absolute furthest thing that should be in these rooms conveying these messages. Um, And I have a, you know, corporate work for me is, it is not my, it is not always the space of highest impact for me, right? That's mm-hmm. not lost on me, but I know that it is an important role for me to play in the larger sort of ecosystem of work I claim yeah. to care about in the world, right? I can't yeah. write books about intersectionality and queerness and whiteness, and I can't work with youth participatory action researchers, and I can't you know, think politically with the teeth I do while completely avoiding corporate rooms full of white collars, you know, and, and yeah. I think it's this sort of last handful of years in my life when I started to embrace that a little bit more. And I think in full transparency and vulnerability mirrored back to you, I'm still trying on how it feels to talk about being that person going into these spaces in this body, mm-hmm. in this moment, you know, I'm, I'm, it's like a rehearsal and, and sometimes it feels great and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that, uh, those spaces for me are important ones to feel like I'm not avoiding. Yeah. Um, and I, I just want to lift up again, the, the transparency in your naming that for us. That felt good. Mm-hmm. I think too, what's, um, what's landing on me is the, the intentionality at which you're, uh, I would say leveraging your privilege instead of flexing your privilege. Right. And so to me, that really does speak beautifully to an intersectional integrity of, you know, it may not feel good all of the time that I am the fate. And I, that resonates with me too, right? Sometimes I'm the person in the room when Deidre and I are co-facilitating, she'll say something and then will look at me for me literally to repeat it. <laughs> 
the same thing, right? And I'm laughing because it makes me want to cry. <laughs> we just named that. But like there is a, a, a dysfunction that I feel naming and bringing transparency to and then being intentional around it of, you know, navigating and interrupting anti-blackness and racism where folks will not hear um, that is being so clearly and beautifully said, <laughs> unless it's from someone who looks like them. So I, I appreciate the, that we're in it. And I, and I think that I, I have to check in with myself about that, like every week, every project, you know, every time I'm like stepping into these particular spaces, because it's a nice narrative, right? Saying that I'm sort of like leveraging privilege, right? But, but there's also a paycheck that's coming my way every time I step into one of these rooms right? That is contributing directly to the quality of my life. And there's a nice narrative attached to that in my head about how that subsidizes the work that I then go do for my own creative and political exercise. Um, but I have to remind myself that and check in with it every time, right? Because when you're slogging through the day and you're project to project to project, you're popping in and just doing what you do kind of on autopilot. And it's easy to not let that reflection, the sort of like privilege leveraging, right? Be the top of mind every time you enter that space. And um, yeah, and I'm, I'm still, I think, working through that narrative too, but I'm, I'm there. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, much like the, how are you doing today? <laughs> I imagine it is a daily, right? Uh, it's one of the That's things right. we talk about in our tools. It is a daily practice because context changes, life changes, pandemics hit roller coasters we are sent on uh so i appreciate your yeah. mindfulness of that too yeah well i think also like we have to be reminded like you know one of the constructs of white supremacy is perfectionism right and and <laughs> so if we keep trying you know i think one of the things that draws me into this work or like i'm really appreciating when maureen you know we were thinking about let's have conversations with people um and, you know, we have the pre, a lot of times people want to have pre-conversations because they want to get it right, right? And they want to make sure that um, a lot of the times we're talking to our, our colleagues and our friends and they want to make sure that um, they're giving us what we want, right? And I get that. I would do the same thing. I'm not judging that in any way, shape, or form. And it's a good reminder about um, mm -hmm. that we've been trained in that mindset of, right, like we got to get it right and it's got to be perfect. And I think... The more of us, like, I want to have these conversations with folks like you, Adam, who can be really transparent about that, because I think it's important for folks to see that we don't always get it right. Um, and we don't always, we don't always remember um, to leverage or flex or to be conscious of it, right? Or to be mm. aware of our intent. And, <clears throat> and that's part of the process. Um, it, and it doesn't mean that we cancel people out, right? It mm. doesn't mean that we um, stop um, stop the conversation, right? It means mm -hmm. like, okay, like, you know, like in the, having the space to be able to be like, I failed and it's learning mm. as opposed to I failed and now I've been canceled, right? Or I'm just like, I can no longer do this work, right? I think that that, that um, what I think is really important for people to remember is that's for me, that's transmuting white supremacy and patriarchy. That's transmuting this idea of having to be perfect all the time. And that when we're not perfect, we punish, right? Instead, it's like mm. you show up, show up as best you can. And then sometimes we're going to harm. And sometimes 
we're gonna less harm, right? <laughs> like yeah. Sometimes we're gonna harm, yeah. and sometimes we're gonna less harm. <laughs> and the the beauty is in learning to own it and be accountable and make amends if we need to, or set up boundaries, like whatever. I don't know. There's all kinds of you know. There's a plethora of things, but that's yeah. what I heard. Like I just really appreciate you saying yeah. that of like there's this space that we have to I think those of us who are really doing this work we have to continue to carve out and yeah. show right show yeah. to others how how we do this in a way that we are intentionally trying to do less harm to ourselves and to other folks mm. dude I so appreciate that reflection um and in part it's also reminding me of just like the the urgency for my own community around the this work because like I, I am someone, I think if there's anything I'm like unlearning with incredible urgency every day of my life, it's that. It's mm -hmm. trying to fight the daily minute to minute urge, even email to email urge, right? Of like prioritizing other people's comfort, right? Of being perfect in a way that is like the, the fourth pillar of capitalism underpinning, right? Um, <laughs> and just because I know, for example, that like, I, I would like to be in draft form today <clears throat> because this is where I'm at. Um, I'm swimming around in a whole bunch of different, like, I'm not going to show up and be capital P perfect. Um, yet in lots of the spaces we work in just because I'm feeling a particular way does not give me a hall pass for showing up in a way that my job description says I have to for this role or this project, mm -hmm. right? And the sort of self-care side of that for me, I think 50 more often than not, I push toward what my job description tells me I ought to be doing, right? I don't show up in spaces mm -hmm. with the kind of unpolished that I feel like I hunger today. In part, also recognizing that that is like, you know, there's something deeply white and capital focused about wanting to show up polished. But when push comes to shove, I'm going to lean toward that because I'm like scared not to. Right. And where the element mm -hmm. of community so comes into play for me is the ability to be able to talk about and process and actually be unpolished or imperfect in in the spaces where the stakes are still high, where I am still working. Right. It's not like debrief this with me. It feels like the actual emotional and heart stakes of my life are at its highest in those spaces. Um, but I appreciate you, mm -hmm. you naming that because it's a thing that I think I work on every day in every project. And, uh, and I rarely give myself the permission to be as, um, yeah, like impolished or unpolished as I, as I know I need to well, I think it's in one order of those... to set down. Yeah. Well, it's like, I hope that what I hope for you is like those Trojan horsey moments that you mentioned yeah. earlier is like, I think like that, like when we start thinking about, you know, traits of white supremacy, I think that like, at least from the way that I, I'm not in corporate circles, but I do do work with white folks. And mm -hmm. so what I've learned is that, um, sometimes it is just a consistent, subtle, sort of input of mm -hmm. um, learnings yes. to dismantle those things, right? Yes. So I hope that, you know, in moments that you feel like you can grab onto it, that there are ways to, um, you know, I like, I'm like, I'm going to use, 
you know, white supremacy's white, uh, white hand, right hand, <laughs> right hand of insidiousness right back at it and be kind mm. of insidious around um, helping folks break those tendencies, right? Those, yeah. those, those ways. Like I think there are it and that, but that's part of the work. Like I think you can only do it if you are practicing it. If you feel like you can only practice it in certain circles or certain com- like comfort places. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I don't, I don't judge that. I don't judge that because I think it's, I think it needs to be practiced in order for it to be performed anywhere. So if my hope for white folks doing work with white folks is that you're practicing it somewhere so that when you're with the people with power and decision makers that are fucking up the world, you can be insidious enough to sort of plant, you know, seeds that will disarm and dismantle these ideas of perfectionism, you know, and, and um, right to comfort and all that stuff. One of the reasons that, or one of the pathways that has led me toward applied poetic in professional spaces, right, is sort of kindred to what we're talking about here, right? Like a lot of my work, a lot of my research is around how to apply storytelling and play and performance in spaces where we're kind of creating this like pedagogy of disruption, right? I think like learning happens at the rupture. And I think love and healing, real healing Mm -hmm. happens at the rupture. And sometimes I often know that I give myself much more permission to be the kind of like free and uh, unpolished version of myself when I am engaging in art, right? And and when I, even when I am presenting or performing something that I have rehearsed a thousand times, the signal is still the clearest for me and it is the most unpolished. And often to use that language again of like Trojan horse pedagogy, sometimes by bringing art into these spaces we're talking about, it allows me to like retain and emphasize a little less polish in how I show up. Right. And it certainly, it certainly encourages through participant art creation. It certainly encourages other people to set that sense of perfection down in order to participate in sure. In the first 40, we're like telling a story or working on a poem, or there's like a human mosaic thing that we're doing with our bodies, but like there's a kind of opening and a kind of like, there's a there's a muscle that I think you could say we're atrophying. We're atrophying the sort of like perfection muscle, but we're also building the muscle that I think it takes to be able to show up um, without polish. And I, I'd like to think that there's a, a kinship there in terms of how those paths have like collided for me. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I You have me thinking about, one, what a brilliant strategy that is to find the uh, the intersection of the polished and unpolished in art um, as a Trojan horse strategy, because I was yeah. sitting here in reflection around the ways that perfectionism, um, particularly in corporate America, must be like an insidious derailment. Like if it's not perfect and put That's together, right. we don't value it. And so what a brilliant, I hadn't even thought of the, that, that the way that you just framed that, because it does give that kind of permission that is such a hard permission for folks who um, are just normalized into, I cannot show anything that's not perfect, but art Mm -hmm. is such a glorious place that even though it's polished and rehearsed, Mm -hmm. there's, it is that rupture. It does bring us to that place of rupture where, thank you for saying that, that love and healing is, is such a, a necessary 
I don't want to say it's a consequence. It's a necessary next step uh, if we're really truly in the art, in that in that space with someone, that liminal, right? That liminal space. And sometimes I think that art or creativity functions in that way, particularly, you know, we're calling it corporate spaces, but it could literally be any space that prioritizes polish, right? Or prioritizes right. these sort of power hierarchies. Yeah. Sometimes I find there's traction in that approach or that pitch because there isn't a comparative measuring stick to what this could look like if you come in and and do it. You know, we don't we don't know what this might be like. And in some ways, the not knowing is an easier thing to embrace from like a company or an organization or a school. Because like we've brought some diversity trainers in here, right? We brought a lecturer in. We're working on an anti-racist curriculum and that shit's not working well, right? And, and we're all reading the same sets of books and things like that. There's a familiar language and expectation that's already built up. And there's something about there not really being a measuring stick, right? As long as you're not the last person who came in and actually made things worse, we're willing to try like whatever you tell us to try. <laughs> Hop on one mm -hmm. foot and write a poem. Mm -hmm. Is and is in a weird way more possible than asking people to sometimes sit through a traditional, you know, equity training in a in a very weird disorienting way. But it's a thing I'm learning, and Maureen, you you naming that I think probably has a lot to do with that. It's funny because that's why I think about uh, younger millennials and Gen Zers. I think they have a lot to do with how we can come in and do some of this work in a very different way now than oh. a decade ago, you know, <laughs> like, totally. Oh, like totally. I love, and like, you know, I love, I, it's, you know, pre 2020 when I was facilitating in rooms, I loved when, you know, there was that, that uh, person of a younger generation who would come in and just try to throw a complete and utter tire wrench in the process. I'm like, yes, please. Totally. <laughs> Totally. And, and I'm Please. there and, and I'm there next to them. Right. And I'm there next to them, like ready to polish anything that moves. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, they're like, oh, no, we don't do it like that. And then I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, no, 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 no. Well, we don't do it like that. You heard her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh. So I'm wondering, you know, we uh, have talked a little bit about ways that intersectional integrity are playing out in your uh, in your current lens. I'm wondering, uh, as you sit in whatever the rooms are that you're in, there's a variety of rooms that you're in, um, as you sat with the invitation to reflect on what intersectional integrity is to you. I'm curious, because uh, I know your brain is brilliant and amazing and there's all kinds of things swimming around in there. What are some <laughs> what are some things that came up with this invitation that you want to talk with yeah. us about today? Feel free sure. to include squeals at this squeals. point. Squeals. <laughs> amazing. Careful what you wish for. Born to squeal. <laughs> Also, if those of you are listening but not watching, you just missed an amazing shimmy by Adam. Yes, so that's true. To... <laughs> love a shimmy it over was, here. It was, a, it was a visual squeal. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, that's a that's a good question, Maureen. I think you know, I am always sort of like trafficking in a few plots of thought um and there are, for me right now are two really 
critical buckets that have been sort of occupying my time when I'm thinking about intersectionality, when I'm thinking about intersectionality within whiteness in particular, and how that often functions for me as a, as a teacher um, and, and as a facilitator and as an individual, right, on a personal level too. Um, but among the many journeys that I've been on over the course of the past couple years, like all of us, um, one has involved the opportunity to facilitate a series of seminar groups with white senior leaders working in education and social impact sectors, um, specifically talking about whiteness um, and anti-racist identity development. And I won't name explicitly who I've been doing this work for at this juncture, but I, I will say that it has been incredibly powerful for me um, and rewarding and troubling in all the ways that you probably might expect that work to be. Um, this for me is in a moment where alongside, you know, depending on the studies we read, more white people are engaged in the struggle for racial justice, however we're defining that, than at any other point in our nation's history, right? Which alongside the statistic, we're reminded of that like general support for government-sponsored reparations still hovers somewhere between like 16 and 19% from white people. Um, and really trying to sort of figure out how it is that we have managed to find ourselves in this sort of like dynamic where white fragility and how to be an anti-racist are on the bestsellers list for their 193rd straight week in a row. And yet part of how we are asking people to critically think about whiteness and reparations does not involve a really, really tangible action-based step about how to repay and repair. Um, mm. And, and this, whole, this whole journey of facilitating this, these series, these sessions has really awoken for me um, both some old, some old questions, I think, about my own journey into thinking about white work um, and some really new ones. And some of the old ones are, I think, around like, I guess, I guess just that, right? I, I think, Maureen, I've shared with, this with you before, but thinking about how I came into a sense of like white identity awareness, you know, when I was in college, a lot of it was through like reading and it was very academic and it was self-reflecting. And it was once you moved, there's a bunch of really, really powerful models, which we still use some of which we've troubled and rebooted, you know, but they were really powerful work at the time. But the general MO of all that work was stages one through almost to the end is still really steeped in thinking about yourself and how you interact with others, how you show up, how you mitigate unconscious bias, how you do less microaggressions, how you practice microaffirmations. And then once you're through all of that work, you arrive at like self-autonomy over a white racial identity that entitles you to practice what we could be calling reparations, right? Like tangible behavior change. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about that, how like even in the way that I have learned my own sense of self as a white person in the world has been steeped in reading and writing and reflecting and reading and writing and reflecting and reading and writing and reflecting until you get to the very end where you're awarded the the opportunity to go really think about what reparations means to you. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot more about how inverted I'd like to see that model 
frankly. Like I think that I think that the self work and the self investigation is absolutely critical um, and paramount. But I also think that white people, it, that, I think that the the notion of reparations can and should be treated almost like an entrance ticket, not the sort of like rodeo that you get to participate in once you've gone through these various stages. So I've been thinking a lot about that, right? And I think the second one that um, has evolved for me, and, and this came to mind when thinking about the notion of intersectional integrity, since learning about, um, I guess, the last sort of 15 years of my life, since since walking into uh, the development of my own racial identity in the world, I've also grown much more intimate and familiar and proud of and connected to other parts of my identity within whiteness, right? And that has meant um, being a gay man. That has meant being um, part of a strange family dynamic um it has been there's all different kinds of things that have complicated my relationship to whiteness um during periods of which i have had to prioritize my own survival right and you know the 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 book that i recently wrote is really about that pursuit of survival as a queer person in the world coupled with a lot of other stories around addiction and depression and masculinity. But the takeaway that I'm bringing to you now, I think, is just sort of like how even in our stories, uh, even when we are pursuing our own survival, we are inherently, oh, um, oppressing other folks, right? We are making other people's lives um, and breath shorter and harder even when we are pursuing our own um, selves, right? Meaning at some moments of our lives, it is absolutely essential that we prioritize ourselves so that we make it through. And even alongside doing that, um, we're sort of transgressing or the, the potential for us to transgress on the lives of others, people we love, particularly people in my life, right? Who have propped up my ability to go on a self-pursuit and survival mission, um, to reclaim myself, all of that has made me think much more critically about the way that I was asked to think about um, whiteness in the world. Mm. So those are the two general sort of buckets I sort of am am bringing to you all. And I know there's lots of questions and maybe we don't have Mm. sort of time to sparse them out, but those are the two real (laughs) sort of flashpoints that um, that leapt Mm -hmm. out of the pan when when I, I figured that we'd be chatting for a while. Yeah. Oof. Thank you for that. Um, Deidre, I see you writing, and I, of course, have like a million thoughts and questions, but I'm going to No, pause. I want you to go ahead. I'm still pro- I'm processing because I want to hear two white people talk about this. Let me just say it that way. I want right you on. to talk because I'm having <laughs> thoughts, but I don't, uh, I don't think they lend themselves yet to the conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right on. I uh, really love... Uh, so much of what you said, one thing that's uh, jumping out to me is the the idea of reparations as the the entry point as opposed to something to work towards. And what I'm uh, one of the things that I was sitting with is the idea of 
you know, particularly in racial identity development, those stages one through five, which is one way to think about it uh, in a very linear academic way. Another way to think about it is uh, as I'm a white person trying to even acknowledge that I'm white and that the world uh, is horrifically unjust um, and that my whiteness in the world plays a part in that, um, that in order for me to get to a place of giving up that which I did not earn as a part of repair and reparations mm-hmm. requires coddling and mm-hmm. care to even get me to an awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I try to think about that in a less linear way. That's right. And I'm really struck by that. Like, I, I think a lot about, you know, um, Deidre, you and I talk about this sometimes. There's like, if we think about a pendulum of like, on one side of the pendulum is people doing work around beliefs and another side of the pendulum is folks doing action. The, the, the goal, I, th- I think, in my opinion, I'll say in the eye, is that folks are doing both, right? That we are, th- I am thinking about the belief systems that I hold, whether they're deficit belief systems about myself, like I'm not good enough, or I don't think something's going to change anyway, or having the radical courage to confront anti-blackness within myself as I've been indoctrinated into, right? Like that I believe, uh, that I believe deeply because I've been taught that way in white supremacy and that I have a lifetime of undoing, right? Like that's rooted in belief work. And then there's action work, right? There's action work of how can I show up and teach? How do I show up and be a member of a community that I live in that is rapidly gentrifying? How do I show up and interrupt police brutality that disproportionately impacts black people in this country? And, and to do one without the other, I think, is, is a deep disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really struck by the idea of how do we not have folks have to focus only on like the belief work mm-hmm to get to a place of being in action around reparations. Like, you know, and I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just struck by the idea that white supremacy is so insidious and invasive here that white folks need so much of the belief work and the healing work to even get to, yo, this is just right. You didn't earn this. You didn't like give up half of it right now. And the, Mm -hmm. the harm that that conceivably could cause yeah. And the centering of whiteness in yeah. that and that yeah. like that the, you know, I, I appreciate so much of what you're talking about because we are at a pivotal time mm-hmm. where folks are galvanized, but only galvanized so much. Right. right. And that like if we started out the gate, if the you know, if it wasn't a Trojan horse, if it was just a horse that's like you can't come in this equity space until you like turn over half of your family's, um, you know, I just made that up half, but like half of the money that your family has. Uh, you know, and then you can come into this equity space that, that doesn't currently work. I don't think either. So I'm just left curious, like, tell me more about some of the struggles and the challenges, but also some of the ways in which you see this conversation around reparations as an entry point in these powerful spaces of white only spaces where folks are doing some of this work. I'm just, I want to hear more. Yeah. I mean, I think for starters, right. I, uh, if, I would, I'm doing lots of jobs always, project hopping, mm-hmm. but there's like literally nothing I feel more strongly about than a re-education of white children in America. And I would shut every job and mm-hmm. every project and every book and every engagement I'm working on down if there were a national wholesale commitment to experimenting on what a true meaningful re-education of white kids in this country could look like, right? And quote me on that 
put it through a megaphone. If anyone listening wants to, <laughs> <laughs> wants to catapult or jumpstart white re-education mm. camps, I am down for it. Yeah. Um, and I, I maybe mm. choose that entry point, Maureen, because I do think that they're, we're at a stalemate in that regard, right? It's like a non-starter yeah. to say, give up a quarter of your family's wealth accumulated over the course of the past two centuries, right? Like that's not an entrance ticket that would even bring people to the party. Um, But I say it in acknowledging that in working with groups of self-identified progressive white leaders working in equity and social impact spaces, Mm -hmm. never even Mm -hmm. on their journeys has the question of what do I have to give up crossed their mind or been introduced to them as a necessary component, right? So we could even break the data down and talk about who we're really talking about here, right? Which is probably like 20% Mm -hmm. of the country or 30% of the country, which are like activated, excited, Mm -hmm. progressive white people, right? But I'm saying even among those folks, our positioning of the dialogue has been so sort of like co-opted by the belief space, right? By the academic sort of cultivation of whiteness studies that at no point in our own development did we ever think that we would need to do anything more than just continue to buy books and show up at book clubs. Um, hmm. mm-hmm. And I think that's the sort of question mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking myself now, right? Is like, it's clearly those are folks yeah. that I need um, in my corner to keep, to keep this, to keep talking what I'm talking, right? Those folks have to come with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't quite know yet what that looks like. And I know that the question of, Mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of great models that are swimming around out there for cities and towns and counties who are, you know, engaging in different practices. Um, But I often think that, yeah, I mean, and and maybe that's the real work. And it's a cop out to say, just give me the kids. (laughs) Let's just start from something (laughs) a little bit less tainted, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? By Mm -hmm. 15 years of Mm -hmm. denial. Um, and by 15 years of denial, mm-hmm. I mean like a century and a half. Um, but I think mm-hmm. you, know, you, know, you get what I'm, I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to offer, I don't think it's a cop out. I think uh, yeah. an analogy I think of often is that um, an anthill has been kicked over and there's yeah. lots of frenetic energy everywhere <laughs> and people, people, aka ants, are scurrying. And so... What does it look like to pick the grain of sand that you're going to carry and just the trust, the inherent trust that all of us are going to carry a grain of sand. And so mm-hmm. we're unindoctrinating and re-educating white children in this country with an intentionality um, yeah. feels like a very critical grain of sand. So <laughs> uh, and, and I, I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, the other thing I'm I'm uh, I know we don't have too, too much time to go down the rabbit hole of this. But the other piece I've been really sitting with is, you know, you you mentioned uh, being intersectional and the multitude of identities that you hold queer and um, the, the work of, you know, I hear of my friends who identify as queer, the work of moving towards love and of self-love and being proud of that identity. And, you know, I think a lot about um, how white folks don't engage in that conversation either, right? Of like uh, white folks who are just focused on race as their racial identity. Like the question I'm really sitting with is 
you know, what does it really take for white folks to be proud of being a white person in these times? And that's mm. such a loaded question with like white pride, right? Mm. Because that's a that's a holding on to a, a historical context of whiteness. But what is a what is yeah. um, a whiteness that I can be proud of um, knowing what I know and knowing what I don't know, mm. you know, and, and to me, that feels like a beginning to acknowledge, wow, there's clearly so much I don't know and clearly so much that I have in privilege in the world. So it kind of brings me back to like, how do I leverage my privilege, not flex my privilege, right? So if I think about reparations, you know, am I and how many wealthy folks come into communities of color with all their money as if they have the answers? That is a flex of privilege that is not reparations, right? But a leverage is here is here are the resources and I it's none of my damn business what you do with that money right yeah like (laughs) and for so many folks to not even be able to fathom that as a possibility is Mm -hmm. such a beginning like so what is the struggle with that as you sit with the possibility of that what do you notice in your body what do you you know what are the elements of judgment that you have about that as a strategy and by the way like how could that contribute to your powerful development as being the kind of white person you could be proud of in this world. Like what opens for you in the giving up of something that you don't, you're, you aren't certain about yet. Mm. You know, I don't have an answer for that. I'm just sitting with some of those questions. Like those, I feel like those are powerful questions. I'd love to see more white folks engaging. So thank you for raising this point in the flash pan. I think that's a really, really juicy question Um, because so much of what keeps white people I love who are in my life out of this dialogue is the belief that being white is forever a piece of shame that they will never Mm -hmm. unlearn, right? Mm -hmm. And, right, the the two words, like pride and whiteness can't go together, Mm -hmm. right? That's right. And yet Mm -hmm. when I think about the kind of white person that I would like to see on the other side of a committed education, it is one that inherently understands Maybe this is like the stage after positive identity development, right? As a white person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like a couple stages down from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one who, who deeply understands um, and internalizes, um, you know, what it means to have had to let go of much of what you came into this world um, expecting, Right. Um, so on the one hand, we're talking about like a critical identity development, a sense of self, et cetera, et cetera. But, but we're talking about a debt owed. And I don't know that like the idea of a debt owed is like the healthiest thing for white people to walk around feeling, right? And yet, when I think about what would make me proud of a group of young white children, right, that I might participate in it's actually a really helpful exercise to think about what are the 10 things that these kids would know on the other side of like an experiment right 
Um, being proud of being white is only earned through the understanding that you are made possible through centuries of violence and centuries of systemic oppression, right? Um, and I'm thinking through that because I, I wish, I wish, that's really juicy. It's really juicy because, because I think a lot of white people are mostly concerned with not being those white people, right? People are more afraid of being named racist than they are reparations. And whatever education is required to sort of help embrace the inherent racism of what it means to be white in this country and that that isn't a thing to be ashamed of insofar as it is a fact and a data point, right? Sure, there's emotional labor attached to that, but that's what I'm, I'm sort of occupied with when I hear your question and something definitely worth um, writing more about and taking on. Deidre, what are you thinking? I'm, I, you know, I'm super cute. Like, so I, I'm curious. I'm left with curiosities because um, I find myself having thoughts and I'm going to share them, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very clear. A lot of my work is around making a distinction between my perception of what's happening around me and what is actually happening around me. Mm-hmm. You know, as I was listening, it was really interesting to listen. Like I'm listening to you to have the conversation and it, it is, it's, it's very juicy. It's very meaty. And then I, I, and I, and there were things that came up, but it was, I, I, I don't know what it's like to be white, right? Like I have no concept of, so for me, there's a constant process in my mind of like um, to battle judgment of white people and the way white people move through uh life um Mm -hmm. is like it's a constant when something comes up i have i turn it into a question for me Mm -hmm. of like um what you know this is based on what i think i'm hearing right so here's it's a curiosity um, so I guess that's like turning judgment into curiosity and not, I don't necessarily think mm-hmm. I was in judgment. I would tell you, well, yeah. Maureen knows I would say if I, I was <laughs> yes, in judgment, um, but it was, um, you know, so I think when you start, and this is very, going to be very nonlinear, but mm-hmm. at the end, like it, I landed at, like, it, what's interesting to me is that, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy, like I don't, I never separate white supremacy from patriarchy. Those two for things sure. for me are. Uh, play off of each other quite extensively. And I think in my experience, patriarchy is actually the stealth little devil in the equation that we still don't want to talk about. Uh, We we, we can talk about white supremacy in corporate offices. Let's, when are we going to talk about patriarchy too? But, um, and that's not, and that's coming from someone who focuses race in all of her identity conversations, right? So I'm not on the white feminist tip of, (laughs) <laughs> let's not talk about race yeah. just gender okay that's not where i'm coming from but um but i found myself thinking you know white supremacy from my experience of whiteness as a queer black 
working class person. I keep, and, and even working with my white clients, what I keep seeing is that this, what needs to happen for white folks to embrace their humanity over their race? That's a, like, that's what I think. Like what, what's the, mm-hmm. I don't know what the process is, um, but what needs to happen in order for white people to, to think about their experience in this world and their experience with other people if they base their identity on their humanity versus their race. And the reason that I say that is because race is a construct, right? And race, um, not to say that, you know, mm-hmm. so constructs have power, constructs have privilege, constructs, but they're, it's a construct. It is something that was created to divide us. And when I hear white people talk about how can we be prideful, how can we find pride in whiteness outside of white supremacy or white pride, let's go kill a black person. Um, I'm thinking like, that's a really difficult thing for me because in my, from my perspective and my current understanding whiteness in America now, and this is very different. I have, I always have a very, in my mind, there's a distinct difference between white American Irish people and Irish people in Ireland or white Scottish people in America and Scottish people, right? Or um, because whiteness in America is founded in anti-blackness, in a class structure and in violence. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that I want white people to identify pride and any of that shit. I think Mm. the work is about pushing Mm -hmm. back on the construct of whiteness a construct that's tell like I think that it's simultaneous. That's the other thing. When you first started talking, I I I wanted more. Like I, I was like, what if what if you thought about the way you're formulating this in more of a both end, as mm-hmm. opposed to an either or. I felt a lot of implied mm-hmm. either or, um, mm-hmm. and so like I think mm-hmm. that you can hold both like an acknowledgement of the privilege that comes from this violent construct of whiteness as well as simultaneously doing the work to push back on it being what we pass down to our children, which for me connects to the work you're saying Mm -hmm. about with the kids. Like at some point, allowing yourselves to be labeled white the way that white America labels whiteness is the problem because it's situated in violence and anti-blackness um, hatred and to divide. And so there's something there. So I agree with like a reframing. I, you know, I was glad that you finally got to when you first said reparations is the entrance of the door. I was like, well, fuck it. We ain't never going to have no revolution because white folks ain't getting there. Poor white people ain't got no money. (laughs) Ain't trying to give up reparations. So, You know, white people with money ain't trying to give up shit unless it's tied to a grant where they get to control everything and tell all the little people how to move and how to be and what is success, right? So, mm-hmm. I, and so I think that like that, there's something in there around that belief system, like, but that's connected to simultaneously holding the reality of where whiteness in America comes from. Like when I'm doing workshops with white folks, I do, I constantly, I'm like, you need to do yeah. some fucking ancestry work. And figure out where your people came from, right? Like in America, we have this dialogue. We say indigenous. We're thinking Native American people on reservations. Yes, and 
Mm-hmm. Like we all at some point we're fucking indigenous. Where's yeah. your people come from? It doesn't negate to say that. It doesn't I'm not saying use that as a reason to absolve mm-hmm. you from your white Americanness. That's and right. that's not to say that white folks in yeah. Ireland ain't got white supremacy inside them or anti-blackness. I'm not like, again, it's not either or there's no, mm-hmm. I, for me, like the starting point has to be, right. there got to be a point where we can have some sort of conversation without the extremes. And mm-hmm. I don't, I've never seen it work to be able to have a conversation with a white person where we white person, where we start with how fucked up they are, <laughs> you know, like it just, and mm-hmm. I do that from That's the right. eye because if you come at yeah. me telling me about all my faults, I don't mm-hmm. want to work with you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. Like we need to establish some sort of relationship where I feel like mm-hmm. I can, mm-hmm. I can let my guard down enough to be vulnerable to have this conversation. Yeah. And that's only like you said it. Love and healing happens at the rupture. Mm-hmm. And so if I I know that like I don't want to mm-hmm. I don't want to start with white people in hate. The difference is that for me, talking about the violence of America is not hate. And so we have to have the conversation with white people of that distinction of like, when I talk about the violence of white America, that does not equal you're a bad person or that I hate you. But that's a conversation that has to be had because I know that's what often Mm -hmm. white people will hear, right? They will hear, I'm a bad person. I did this. You want to take something from me. Mm -hmm. I have to lose. Some of that stuff might be true, but we don't talk about it, right? We just mm-hmm. jump to assumptions and, and conclusions yeah. and then the conversation yeah. we don't even have conversations in this country, right? Mm-hmm. We just have we have we have dialogues and debates. Yeah. So that's <laughs> all the places that my brain was going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I think yeah. you got like you said it before you even got to all this. I I wrote that down. Like in all our interviews, I'm starting to make a list for uh t shirts. Um, and quoting, I'll get permission, but quoting people and like, I will, you know, love and healing happens at the rupture. I fucking love that. Right. And I think that speaks to what you're mm. talking about. Yeah. Deidre, thank you for, mm-hmm. thank you for that mm-hmm. download. That is really making me think, um, treating a conversation or treating like an insistence on reparations as an entrance ticket, right. Is a non-starter. Nobody wants to hear that shit. It is not useful. We've seen it in the past, right. I think alongside that, um, and maybe again, right, instead of thinking about 80% of this tragic country, we're thinking about like an activated 20%. But like, even within this activated 20%, Mm -hmm. I think my like, I have just like reached my shelf life Mm. on going deeper and deeper into the feeling headspace and the heart space around processing a white identity in people's work, right? In choices people make as leaders. Without that transmitting to the work being people's actual lives, right? Like, where do you send your kid to school? Mm-hmm. Where do you live? What was the mm-hmm. history of that neighborhood before you got there? Yeah. And what doesn't help transmit that is the self-excusal ticket that white education books continue to sort of challenge folks to go deeper around. And I hear everything that you're saying. And I think I've spent so much of my Mm -hmm. working life prioritizing the like handhold and making sure that people feel comfortable where they're at Mm -hmm. as long as they know that they can't stay there. Right. And um, 
I think I'm wrestling with that alongside the firm reality that you can't come in and point people's faults out. I think that was the space from which a lot of the sort of like bringing in art, bringing in creativity, right? Like let's get people out of the, this is your fault zone, right? Or that you are racist or that what you have done is bad space. Um, Because Mm -hmm. history has shown us even, even in looking back at like the evolution of diversity and equity trainings in the world, right? It's like you give us 10, 10 words to memorize and do like family histories and we'll talk about how slavery has benefited us. Like it turns people off and it is a very shameful fact that folks need to be like turned open or need to be like turned on or warmed up in order to sort of engage in some excavation process around mm-hmm. the violent reality mm-hmm. of our, our country. But I think I'm sort of like, I'm halfway there, you know, where I know just continuing to invite people who care into mm-hmm. deeper conversations mm-hmm. with each other and with themselves, not enough. But I also know to your point that like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. telling people yeah. point blank at step one, right? These are the ways in which you are flawed and the ways in which you are the beneficiary of centuries worth of money and violence, right? That's not exactly mm-hmm. a, it's not a winning entrance ticket. <laughs> so I'm there. And I actually agree. I think, it, you know, that's where it's, mm-hmm. it's both end, right? Here's the yeah. thing. Here's the thing that like, it's both end and yeah, like, that's right. look, you making the choice to to move your engagement of the world and your engagement of racial equity to this place that's um, someone might deem it as more confrontational than the next or less yeah. palatable than the yeah. next doesn't yeah. mean that it that you don't do it right like mm-hmm, look mm-hmm. Um, there's the African parable all boats mm-hmm. all, all uh, about the tides all all, so all boats um, rising that one. <laughs> Yeah, about the time, like, like, look, I, I think that one of the mistakes that um, I'm talking to young people, they'll ask me, how, Deidre, how do you get to do what you do? I want to do what you do, right? Yeah. I love that question because what I explain to people is we have to, you have to stop thinking about you need to do everything, right? Especially when it's women of color, that young women of color. Stop thinking you need to do everything. Figure out what your piece of the puzzle is mm-hmm. and focus there, right? So, mm-hmm. like, your piece might be, you might decide, no, I want to go hard on the paint <laughs> and just get in there and be like, mm-hmm. reparations is the entry point. Yep. And and mm-hmm. because I don't think it's either mm-hmm. or. I think it's that yeah. people mm-hmm. are not, yeah. you know, people are totality and we're complex and we're nuanced. And I think yeah, the more of right. us that's who right. are stepping into this engagement and our journeys from mm-hmm. an authentic place of what we believe and, and we're aligned with our North Star, it's yeah. all working toward the same thing anyway yeah um you know and i think i think you do what you need to do i I think look for me white supremacy patriarchy patriarchy are not things outside of ourselves right it is who we are for me that's the starting point that i start with particularly white folks but people Mm -hmm. of color too like even Mm -hmm. folks i work with a lot of black folks who think anti-blackness and white supremacy don't is Mm -hmm. is white work (laughs) <laughs> which mm-hmm. is no <laughs> no it's not um it's not it's all of mm-hmm. our work because mm-hmm. it's not outside of ourselves it's been yeah. too much a f- part of the fabric mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of years the fabric mm-hmm. of what we believe are the ways that we are allowed to exist and what mm-hmm. we believe are the realities that are possible and so for me that's the juncture point of like yeah that work is what's going to help white folks get there where they'll 
like you know instead of like this step-by-step shit like i don't i don't believe in that because it's just a mm-hmm. checkoff right. point for me mm-hmm. it's like right. trying to help people reframe around what is possible and that there's different right. ways that that's you right. can actually mm-hmm. exist you don't have mm-hmm. to exist mm-hmm. the way that you have been told yes but that's worth that's the long game i'm i'm fine that's with right. it i you know it's the long game and because I, and I know a, I'm clear. My ancestors had to play a long fucking game mm-hmm. to get me here. And I'm in a yeah. much better place <laughs> than my ancestors were. Let me be real fucking clear. Right. Mm-hmm. And so seven generations mm-hmm. from now, I hope mm-hmm. that the, as far as I've come from seven ge- generations before, I th- I'm getting goosebumps. I'm in joy mm-hmm. to think where my ancestors is going to get seven generations from now. That's all I can do in the here and now. Mm-hmm. Yep. So much juice. I appreciate the work that you're doing because it's necessary well, and contemplated. And yes, please teach the white babies. Yes. Help them out. Yes. And you know, yes. like if if there's if there's nothing if there's nothing more <laughs> to take away, like I, I just reparations needs a PR job, right? We need we need a I'm much more that. like critical yeah. rebranding of what we're talking about when we say reparations. And when That's I hear right. Deidre, you talking right. about it being the, the reparations is the brackish water between the either That's or, right. right? And and it's not just open your backpack and fill it full of money and let white people give all their money away. Like obviously there is mm-hmm. monetary redistribution that is a central tenet of what we're talking about here. But part of that work is also the questions about where we're sending our kids to school. You know, where we live, these mm-hmm. other like interwoven mm-hmm. into our life questions. That's the kind of of yeah, of right. incremental repairing work that I would like to see yeah. be engaged okay. alongside even more importantly, right, than like the monetary redistribution, because like smart people will figure that out. <laughs> I'm concerned with like the hard work um, yeah. Yeah. In, in addition to that's it. Right. So mm-hmm. thank yeah. you for. I agree. Mm -hmm. Because in order for folks to get there, to even want to confront where they're sending their kids Mm -hmm. and how that, Uh, you know, that's it, how that uh, is part of a racial identity. There's got, Mm -hmm. it's both head and heart, right? It's not that, like, that's where I'm like, we, you know, I love having this conversation with you. And, you know, I like talking to people who get the both end. It is Mm. both. It is that Mm. pendulum that Maureen, you mentioned, right? It's like finding the middle heart, mm-hmm. head, and let's yeah. move back and forth because yeah. it is the balance of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. Let's bring it into yeah. fucking balance, please. You got it. <laughs> That's what you I'm hoping it. for. <laughs> it's really a joy and an honor to be in communion with each of you in this way. Um, Maureen, I mentioned to you, I think, right, like in a moment when we're all doing a lot mm-hmm. in order to sort of feed our, our hearts and our heads and stay alive and feel critically engaged, I'm learning to think of the work that I do um, in terms of like high stakes or low stakes. And for me, it's always the like, and, and inverting what I used to think of as high stakes, right? Not necessarily the, the polished and the perfective, mm-hmm. right? The ones where we're thinking about how much we're getting paid for opportunities, but like the real, real, real work and the, mm-hmm. and the growing mm-hmm. and the actual tax brass um, labor for me is happening mm-hmm. in communion uh, like this and in conversations like this. Mm-hmm. And I just feel really mm-hmm. lucky to be in concert with y'all and, and I'm honored that you would have me in yes. the dialogue with you and I hope we get to do it again. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Adam. Ditto. Ditto. We might need to do part two. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Answer your phone when we call, too. Adam. Answer Let's your phone when we call. <laughs> Wait and buy it. Wait and buy it. Wait and buy it. Uh.
We want to take a moment and acknowledge the tools used in this podcast are from a course that we have co-created called Cultivating Intersectional Leadership. We believe the path of cultivating intersectional leadership is a transformative journey that supports individuals and organizations in making the deeply systemic, strategic, intuitive, innovative, and necessary shifts away from old ways of being that no longer serve us, our organizations, or our communities. For more information about the course, visit cultivatingintersectionalleadership.com. We want to thank our brilliant and kind producer, Aaron Rand Freeman. And don't forget, if you'd like to support us, we do appreciate it. You can find us on Patreon, Eyes on Whiteness, and you can rate and leave a review anywhere you're listening to the podcast.